The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, I spoke to Dr. Claire McAndrew, the founder of Art Economics and the author of a compelling new report on the art market published by Art Basel and UBS. I wanted to get her view on the future of the art business after last year's punishing 22% drop in sales to around $50 billion, the biggest recession in the industry since the great financial crisis. Predictably, the current state of the market will be dictated by the progress the world makes in vanquishing COVID, vaccinating people, and getting back to some sense of normalcy and travel. That's because much of what makes the art world hum requires in-person experience. Think about everything from those fancy art fairs with their champagne trolleys to the small gallery opening with the cheese and wine in your local neighborhood. That said, online sales have boomed, and auction houses in particular have used them to offset the inability to conduct live, in-person events. Oh, and I was also able to get Claire's take on non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, like the one sold by the artist Beeple earlier this year for a whopping $69 million. The way she put it, think of them as digital certificates of authenticity for art and collectibles, says Claire. Conceptually, that's easy to get, but $69 million for a Beeple? I don't know. Give a listen. Dr. Claire McAndrew, it's great to see you and hear you. Uh, where are you on this fine day? I'm in Dublin, in my office in Dublin. All right. Well, you, you put together a pretty fascinating report on the art market. Um, it said that global sales of art and antiques fell something like 22% to around $50 billion last year. Now, that's to put that in context, that would mark the biggest recession in the art market since the financial crisis. Um, I mean, maybe let's just, what happened? And, and was this all COVID or is this something else? Um, it was a very, it was a really interesting, but a really challenging year. I mean, I think um, nobody was surprised when the sales figures came out that sales were down, you know, businesses were obviously closed because of COVID and events were canceled and people couldn't travel and all those things that are, are so pivotal to, to the art market. It's so reliant on events and travel, but also very much on kind of discretionary um, purchasing. So, I, you know, I was actually surprised by how resilient a lot of the businesses were and how, how much they worked to turn it around into a better year than it could have been. So I, I think that the decline in sales was about um, lack of opportunities. There was demand there, there was even supply there, but there wasn't the same opportunities for sales last year. People were transacting online um, where they could, and they did turn that around, especially in the second half of the year. But um, it, it was a, a lot of things were cancelled. And, and it, the market has been over the last sort of 10 to 15 years become so event driven that that was a big, a big um, change in the market last year. Yeah. You pointed out that online sales uh, were actually boomed. I mean, they reached a record of like 12 and a half billion, double yeah. the previous year, accounting for about 25% of the entire market's value. Um, is, is that just a, was that just a blip because people couldn't go to art fairs, they couldn't go to galleries, they couldn't get out, or is, or is this kind of a secular shift that will that will sort of remain in the market? I mean, this was a huge thing last year, but I mean, I, 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 anyone I spoke to does, doesn't think this is a transitory thing. I think online sales were already growing quite fast. We predicted them to be much faster growing. So I, I think 
from say for example from 2013 to say 2019 they doubled but there was still a relatively small share there was still less than say 10 percent of uh, the value of total sales so the big jump was in the share they accounted for of total that that jumped to 25 percent last year and it was it was opportunities again you know that the galleries were selling through online viewing rooms through art fairs online and through third-party platforms and they, they kind of jumped their share of sales from about 12 or 13% to nearly 40% of their sales. So, so that those kinds of shifts were partially um, specific to the year, but but this was a trend that was kind of accumulating in the in the art market anyway. Um, and galleries and auction companies really ramped up their digital initiatives. And that, that's what there was kind of a lifeline, I guess, uh, during the year. The auction sector was a little bit more ahead of galleries in some ways. It's been making this transition, particularly for the for lower value works, selling most of those um, online over the last few years. But I think the big, if you look at, say, for example, Sotheby's and Christie's and Phillips and some of the bigger auction houses, particularly the Western auction houses, um, they had a huge increase in online only sales. The, the value of online only sales went from less than 2% to, to um, over 12% last year. And they experimented with a lot of new types of sales as well. So there was recorded live sales um, where most of the bidding was online, but they still had the live format. So there's a lot of not just a shift to online, but a shift to new kinds of formats that, that combine live and online selling. And I, as I said, nobody I spoke to thinks that these are going to, uh, you know, kind of just switch back as soon as kind of COVID is over, whenever that right. thing uh, point is um, but it's interesting at the same time everybody is dying to get back to events and to to seeing people in real life and even when we talk to collectors you know although they were very willing to buy online last year um, and buy at the same prices that they would offline you know most people if they had the option would still prefer to view and purchase art offline they, so, they miss that champagne trolley at the <laughs> art fair <laughs> no <laughs> doubt but, but <laughs> what is so <laughs> what do you expect? I mean, you, you, one of the things in the report it showed that the majority of dealers expect an improvement in sales in 2021, which sounds, of course, you know, that, that sounds reasonable. What is your prognosis? What do you think the market is like? I mean, you're already seeing we're, we're already in April. Um, what's your sense of where things will be this time next year when we look back on 21? Well, we did. We checked in at the end of the year. We do these kind of massive surveys of the, <clears throat> the sector, and I think it was 58% expected an improvement in sales in the dealer sector. But I mean, that's not, you know, given that their sales were down 20%, that's not terribly optimistic. You know, 42% that right. they were going to be the same or worse. And I think what it's turning out to be, even then, I think in December, it's so, so changeable. I think we thought probably this year would be a little bit better. We didn't expect all the second waves of the coronavirus, and we didn't, you know, didn't expected probably certainly in Europe the vaccination program would be a bit faster um, so the, the, it is a very changeable sentiment is, is changing quite rapidly but I think this year is still going to be a very transitional year so we don't have the, the big events are not back the big international events and a lot of the supports that, that businesses were relying on have dried up and this is a this is a critical um, factor it was a very hard year for some of the biggest businesses but I think this year 2021 is going to be very difficult for some of the mid-sized and smaller businesses that are just so financially tight that they were really reliant on a lot of those supports to, to kind of see through see themselves through the year. Um, right. You know, I think I think I think what on the positive side, we've seen that people are happy to buy online. So that, that's that's good for the year. And I think the rollout from here will, will certainly be in stages. So I think this year, hopefully we'll see a return to kind of local events and local experiences. 
But I think unfortunately the very last thing that we'll see kind of coming back and recovering will be international travel. And that's- So that's the big art fairs. That's the Basel. That's the big art, art fairs. Art Basel and the, yeah. Absolutely. So what, what will it take to get that going? I mean, is that just gonna be, I mean, are there gonna be vaccine, art vaccination passports or what? I mean, or is it just gonna be, it's really just at the whims of whatever the world the web, you know, where we are with travel and that kind of thing. I, think, I thought I think, these people had their own air, airplanes. Well, some of them do, but they still need to go through customs. Uh, so, and I think what the, the problem is, you need you need this you need free international travel or or kind of hassle free international travel at both ends. So not just in the in the departure country, but also in the destination country. So it needs to be a bilaterally good. Um, kind of flow for, for collectors and, and fairs and businesses. Um, so I think it is the international travel element will take some time and that, that's what really these big international events need. And I think even when, when it does come back, there, there is a kind of a feeling in the sector that the, the art fair calendar could be a little bit less dense anyway. Um, you know, I think galleries were already really auditing their art fair exhibitions um, and a lot of businesses realised that um, in 2020, it was really interesting in the report that and a very positive kind of surprise finding was that the ability to reduce a lot of their operating costs, and a lot of those were in travel and art fairs. Some businesses were actually more profitable last year, despite the, the big drop in sales. So people are really auditing what they're going to do um, in the next couple of years. And they were under the, the, the fair system was a little bit under pressure anyway. There was a very dense calendar of events. People were constantly on the move to, to, to different events. And now the online versions have, have worked quite well in some cases and people can take part without actually being there. So all of these things are, are kind of filtering down into what will develop over the next while. The, the only one thing I think that really businesses are really missing is the outreach to new buyers. So I think it's yeah. last year's sales, a lot of businesses were really good at making sales to online sales to existing clients. And I think we found that both in the gallery sector, in the surveys that we did, and also in the collector surveys, people were buying, they tended to buy artists they knew already from galleries they knew already. Um, so this is where it'll start to bite if they don't get back to these events. It was a really, really important for kind of outreach to new international clients. And I think that's, that's where the online viewing rooms and things don't really bridge the gap completely. So that'll take its toll after a while, I think, without right. real events. I mean, besides COVID, um, which is, of course, the, the biggest impediment to all of this stuff. But I'm just curious about what other other geopolitical headwinds, what role they play. So you think about the rise of protectionism around the world. You think of U.S.-China kind of coldish war, the imposition of tariffs on imported artworks, which we've seen. How how what role has that played in when you look back at, at the numbers and when you look forward and try to, to project? This is, I mean, this is huge. I think trade, trade regulations particularly are really key in the art market because, I mean, art isn't traded between um, kind of producer and consumer the way it is in other industries. So comparative advantage for different locations isn't on who can make the best stuff or who can produce the best art, but it's on which areas can have the most efficient and cost-effective interaction between buyers and sellers. So it's a very internationally traded, very portable, very mobile asset. And it'll it'll migrate to the markets where the conditions are most favourable. So the, the the places with the best and easiest trade and, and business um, context have been the ones that that have attracted um, art markets. So it's it's been dominated in London, New York, and Hong Kong. And these these three 
kind of countries, China, uh, the UK and the US have accounted for over 80% of the sales. And it's not because, you know, it's not being fueled by national demand, it's driven by the existence of these markets themselves. So it's about these cities attracting um, a kind of a critical mass of works for sale. So, so the, the, any tariffs or impediments to um, cross-border trade, import regulations, um, they're, they're all have a very negative effect on the market. And, and things like the, the, for example, the US um, tariffs on Chinese artworks are, are particularly pointless and to the detriment of um, the US market because they don't, they, it doesn't hurt China at all. It damages the New York market. It can't get you know, the works it needs to make these big sales and attract international attention. So it ends up these sales shift somewhere else. They lose all the fiscal revenues and employment and everything that goes with it. So there's no gain to US artists. They're not, they're not like deciding between, for example, a Zawuki and a versus a Warhol. They're, they're, they, they, the US artists don't benefit at all from, from right. tariffs on Chinese goods. So, so it's very, it's, it's detrimental to the, the country that's imposing it rather than- So I guess um, it was largely symbolic by the Trump yes, administration. You know, absolutely, is, absolutely. Is that is but that is that going to remain, or is there are you hopeful that those kinds of that that tariff in particular? Will be? I, I think I think once that they can be understood by governments, and it's the same in in the UK with with the Brexit regulations and the 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 markets now seeing can it escape from some of the European directives that's been imposed on it. But I think once once the once governments can understand um, the 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 nature of of the art market and how it differs from other sectors there's hope for it to be, um, to, for, for change. And I think at least under the new administration in the US, they might be more open to, to listening to, to, to contributions from the arts and culture than perhaps the previous administration was. Of so course, on the other side, the Biden administration is now proposed to pay for a huge infrastructure bill by putting uh, higher taxes on the very high net worth individuals who are the, our market's key clients. What, uh, what do you, how will that affect? Um, I mean, it could. It definitely. This is something that's been brought up a few times by by kind of people to tax lawyers and things to me. You know, the the effects of of what this will mean for you know kind of more taxes on on very wealthy um, collectors and things. But I mean, I think it could potentially, obviously, affect the discretionary income of some collectors. But I think, and you know. I think wealthy collectors find very good ways to manage their, their taxes as they always do and, and their collections of art are part of that. And it's often, I think, the talk of, of what's going to happen that causes some of these uh, changes in the actual art market. So I know at the end of last year, there was um, talk about changes in capital gains tax, for example, for people with wealth over a certain level. And that did cause a kind of a flurry of activity. So it's the, it's the kind of build up to these things that sometimes um, causes people to, to kind of act on on what they're doing in the art market. But there are so many options for, for arbitraging now and so many options for global sales that, that very kind of savvy international collectors can move sales and, and be very um, kind of find very good strategies for their collections. And I do, I do think that the kind of stabilizing influence of this administration on the market will you know, outweigh a lot of the negatives. And you know, as I say, I think they probably have a much more positive attitude towards the arts generally. And I, I think anyone that's in a, an arts or cultural business in the US is, although they're gonna go through an extremely difficult period of recovery, especially the museum sector and stuff that I don't really cover in my own research, that's a very, very badly impacted sector, but there's a little bit more hope of recovery under this administration than, than the previous one, I think. Yeah. 
One of, one of the things, interesting findings you reported said that 66% of the people you surveyed reported that the pandemic had increased their interest in collecting, including about a third who reported that it had significantly done so. So is this just bored billionaires or is this, what, what, how do you explain that? How are people, is it just that they're just cooped up and they just can't wait to get back out to the art fair or to the gallery or what, what is, what, how do you account for that? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a very different crisis than, than the global financial crisis, for example, where, you know, billionaires lost money and the, the number of billionaires was reduced. I mean, obviously, when we measured the, the wealth of billionaires and then increased from March to December, it increased by about 30%. So, so it's a very different, the people did have more money. They also, in many cases, had more time and more time at home. Um, so they also had less options for, for luxury purchases of other kinds. So for example, high-end vacations and things like that. So all that, all that did filter down, I think, into helping the market and making it um, probably less of a contraction than it could have had. Um, but I think it, it's given people more time to sort of reflect on the value of the arts and whether that's um, in, a, in a kind of a, what we might think is a superficial way. You're, you're stuck at home and you want to be surrounded by more beautiful things or whether it's, you know, it's slightly a deeper way where you're recognizing the, the value of art and understanding what's what's going on and giving meaning to some of the, the difficult things that have gone on in the last year. I think that a lot of these factors played in. So it's time, money, time to reflect, more time at home, more time online. All of these things, I think, um, might have influenced that that finding. Yeah. What about the what about the the the, the non-billionaire? I mean, what has this shift towards online or or some of this has this created or the the, the preconditions for I don't know new consumers in the art market to merge? You you mentioned that one of the difficulties for dealers was finding new customers, of course. Um, but what you know, do you think there is this uh, chance to even further democratize the art market? I, I think definitely there is that potential. I mean, that, that's been the big thing that's been touted for online sales. It's, you know, it's supposed to be one of the key outcomes. It's, it's not the same kind of hierarchies or gatekeepers as there is offline. Um, the art market is accessible to a much wider audience. Um, I think the only, the only problem with, with this, um, when it filters down to galleries and artists, is that as the online um, space has become, over the last year especially, has become a lot more crowded, so there's so many offerings online now, a lot of them being presented in very similar ways, it's very hard to, to find things and to distinguish, you know, quality from, from, from you know, things you know to the, the things that stick out are the things that are known already so i mean you know the the important things that you want are you know kind of high quality things whatever that concept means to you but when the market's very very crowded you know signaling becomes more important than than quality um or becomes more noticeable so it, so the online um uh, selling has had the potential to really level the playing field for for galleries and artists and things but in actual fact it tends to be the better known galleries and artists that that are most searched for and found online because people are people don't know what to look for so they're looking for recommendations from people and looking at what other people are doing so it doesn't solve the problem completely although it does it has that very um positive uh um, side effect of opening the the market up to a much wider audience which is a very positive what about what about all this? You've got to explain to me this non-fungible token business. I mean, there was a, the guy who bought Beeple's every day is the first 5,000 days for $69 million. He says they're 10 times better than traditional art. What, what I mean, how do you view that, the emergence of this strange concept? I, th I think it's, it's a really interesting development 
in the market over the last few years. But I think it's very important to, I think some of the reporting on around NFTs and around this sale has kind of confused people a lot because it's if, I know I get a lot of people asking me about NFTs as a new medium or a new art form. And of course, NFTs are just basically the digital certificate of authenticity for digital art objects and also for a range of, a huge range of other kind of digital collectibles that are not art or not even trying to be. So I think that the way to kind of think about them is that they're obviously they're digital, they're online and they're recorded in the blockchain. So they're not, they're unique and they can't be copied. So they're not also like kind of cryptocurrencies which are fungible and by design, everyone's equivalent to the next one. So they're unique um, non-fungible tokens, but, but the token itself is distinct from the art object. So the digital art object is not stored in the NFT somehow or even on the blockchain, it's just linked and incorporated by reference to that token. Um, and the digital art object itself can be easily copied and it's, it's widely available. So, so uh, people's work can be viewed online. You can use it as your screensaver. You can, you know, it's accessible on the internet. It's the certificate that, that by the artist that's backed by Christie's or that says, I own it. That, that's the tradable, scarce, collectible thing. And I guess that that's new, but it's not really new because you know, for decades, you know, contemporary art has relied on certificates of authenticity, you know, especially when you're thinking about conceptual art and installations where the, the message is the key part rather than the medium. So not the light bulbs or the banana or anything like that. It's the, it's the concept. Um, that's so interesting. So it's sort of like, I can have this big house, but yeah. unless I have the deed, the house doesn't have any value to me. I mean, yeah, like, that. like that exactly. And I mean, I think I think um, you know the markets trading NFTs are something kind of different and new. Um, there, there was a kind of a, a feeling that when when this whole kind of concept was evolving over the last few years that it might kind of break down the hierarchies that were in the art market and get rid of intermediaries. And in fact, you know, it's actually quite similar. That they're still um, they're still intermediaries. They're just Kind of they're, they're just transacting on a different type of, of platform um, but I, I think what, what makes it most interesting for me is the the lines that are blurred now between art and other collectibles and some of these are entirely new so if you look at these kind of crypto kitties or little in-app purchases you can buy from second world little swords and things I mean these are obviously not art but there's a line somewhere that needs to be drawn and I, I kind of sidestep it in some ways in, in the research I do because I leave it to galleries and auction houses to decide, you know, what they're selling, that's art, and what, what they don't sell isn't. But these platforms and the explosion of sales and transactions going on has shown me that there's a huge amount going on outside that traditional framework of galleries and auction houses. And another very exciting thing, I suppose, is the much broader audience that we're seeing. And this is kind of going back to the kind of democratizing thing. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole load of kind of, um, kind of gaming fanatics and wealthy sort of techno nerds that are now collecting contem contemporary art or something that kind of is like that, um, that weren't collecting before. And that they've been a really difficult nut to crack. I know a lot of traditional galleries were trying to get a lot of um, kind of wealthy tech people into collecting art and, and not that successful in doing so in any kind of big level. So this is a, it's really opening the market up to a whole new range of um, participants and they're buying art but they're also buying a whole range of collectible objects associated with nfts so it, it's a and this is going into gaming and sports and these massive collectible yeah. markets it's and just bringing the lines is very it's, it's just it's difficult it's going to be very difficult yeah. so what speaking of which what kind of art i mean i think you, you you pointed out in your in your report that uh 
that post-war contemporary art was like more than half of what we saw sold in 2020. Um, what's, is this just where we are? I mean, is, you know, is, is, is there just, that's because there's sort of almost an infinite supply. You can keep creating it, speaking of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies versus, I don't know, you know, old masters or impressionists. I mean, there just aren't that many. There aren't, they're the only ones that come up are gonna be the giant, you know, cost of fortune. I suppose the majority of sales will be of stuff that can be made today. Is that what's happening or help me understand that? Sure, I mean, it is some related to, very much related to supply, but also, I mean, you, it's amazing to see the divergence of interests when you look at the market, you know, over longer periods, you know, contemporary art was available in the 1980s, but it was seen as a really kind of a high risk, um, small sector. And it was only the kind of most unconventional dealers and collectors that were really um, into the market. And now it's by far the largest in value. You know, the, in the 1980s, it was impressionist and modern to some degree. Um, now contemporary art is over half the value of, of the fine art market. So it's been a huge um, uh, sea change. And it, I mean, the older sectors have declined quite substantially and it is a, a thin supply of, of the highest quality of works and circulation. So there's a, there's a fairly liquid market in all masters, but it's the, it's the very high quality ones that don't come onto the market very often. But when they do, you can see that this huge interest in these markets still. So obviously the Leonardo da Vinci sale at Christie's a couple of years ago, you saw the amount of interest in that. And even at the beginning of the year this year, you know, there was a Botticelli work sold at Sotheby's for 92 million. So, you know, that was the second most expensive work ever in a kind of a fairly, you know, cautious time in the market. So the scarcity of these um, pieces in circulation means that the market stays low. But when there is, when things do come onto the market, there is still huge interest in these lower sectors. Volume high tickets, I suppose, yeah. is what you get there. Versus now, uh, you also pointed out there's a there's a piece in the report that looks at this know your customer question. So um, sure. love your perspective on like are dealers in the market doing enough to know their customers to reduce the amount of money laundering and that kind of thing that occurs. In the industry what's your take on that sure um i mean i think this has been a lot of uh concern mounting in europe for the last few years because it's going to come in with ahead of um you know of other other regions but you know the i think a lot of bigger businesses to be honest collect a lot of the information that that's required under new regulations anyway certainly the big auction houses um you know if you go to bid um at an auction house now you, you know the amount of information you have to give you have to give a copy of your passport all the different things so i think the the art market hasn't been um you know I, it, it's slightly overblown sometimes that it's the real wild west unregulated uh, um framework that that it's made out to be i think that, you know most businesses um know their customers and they are collecting quite a bit of information on them um it's just the the administrative burdens now that are required um you know in terms of training staff and the reg and the reporting requirements and things like that under the new um directives that are going to be a little bit onerous on businesses and again it's the it's the smaller businesses that still do transact at that 10,000 plus level um, that need to introduce these um, various kind of frameworks and reporting um, uh, techniques and, and have a compliance officer and do all these things um, when at a really a time when financing is really, really tight and the, the big focus is on trying to cut costs um, that it's going to be problematic again for, for smaller businesses. So I think, I think the art market is, is, is the, the fact that you know, there's, there's issues in every market, but I think it's, it's, um, 
it actually does a fairly good job of, of um, due diligence, um, but there's there's always exceptions. And I think, unfortunately, they're the ones that get publicized all the time. Yeah, no, of course. The normal business is doing, doing the right thing, don't make good headlines. No, that's, well, I'm, I'm, that's fair to say, for sure. So uh, what's, uh, thank you for your time. What's your next, are you itching to get out and go to a show or something? What's your, what's your, what's on your agenda? Like what's your first trip? No, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's amazing how we've kind of kicked into doing kind of online panels and, and, um, you know, talking to people, having conversations um, online, but I, I really do miss, and I, I've missed it just from a research and, and information gathering perspective and sharing information with colleagues, the more informal aspects of, of going to, art fairs and things where you're asking galleries, you know, how, how's business and, and you're just talking to collectors and things like that in a more casual way, but gathering huge amounts of, of kind of background information that gives you ideas and stuff. And it's just, it's not, not quite the same online or over the phone. It has, it's, it just tends to be a little bit more formal and st structured. So I'm, I'm really missing that, um, that contact with people as apart from on a personal level and the social yeah. level, they, they really, um, I can't, I, don't believe I'm saying this, but I can't wait to travel again because I was so kind of, you know, wanting Traveled to out. And now you, Traveled out. Now you can't wait to travel yeah. and see that, yeah. that champagne trolley again. Well, thank you, Claire. I really appreciate your time. Stay That's healthy. Good. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner in New York. And if you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter at Breaking Views and at Rob Wilcox. Goodbye.